Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the privileges that are in Christ. Lord, just the entirety of the worship this morning points us to the beauties of the gospel, to the benefits of those of us who are in Christ, Lord, that we can say it is well. Lord, that when we consider uh, even uh, dead men like Lazarus, Lord, that uh, when you call, we will indeed rise by your grace. And so, Father, as we come this morning looking at a passage that is rich, Lord, full of hope, full of joy for those who are yours, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to see, that you would give us um, ears to hear the beauties that would be found here. And Lord, above all, that as we leave this place, we would be ever constantly singing the praises of Christ, Lord, the one who can ransom us and bring us back to the family of God. And so, Father, I um, am just grateful for the privilege you give us to study your word this morning. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so before we begin, I want to give you a little bit of information. Um, so Beth and I have had a rather eventful um, week um, of which I got to spend a day in the ER. Um, and so with that, normally, and some of you are going to be really excited about this, um, because normally I preach about an hour sermon in 30 minutes because I talk super fast. Um, but because, um, I, because I, I'm a little slow today, then maybe you'll be able to understand everything that I'm going to say. Um, and the laughing confirms the fact that there are people excited. Um, so with that being said, um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Um, when I was growing up, my sister had this poster, and uh, the poster simply said, it was a quote from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors growing up. C.S. Lewis uh, is famous for the Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, and various other works, but um, in, in one of his books, he writes, um, I, I, believe in, um, I believe in Christ like I believe in the Son, not, be- not because I can see it, but, be- but because in all, th- hold on, sorry, not because I can see it, but because by it I see all things. Um, that the purpose and the beauty of Christ is that he came as a light so that by him we could see each and everything um, that, that exists here on the earth, that we can actually see them clearly, that we can see them fully. And apart from his revelation, apart from him coming and bestowing that information that to reveal to us what life actually is. So uh, last week we looked at verses um, three or, or verses four and five, and it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We made reference to the fact that the light mentioned there is not a light that is separated from the life, but it is instead a revelation of that light. Um, for us to perceive and understand what life is actually meant to be, there must be someone to demonstrate it and to make it clear to us. And so what we find in this next passage, as we look at verses 9 through 13, what we find here is this idea of, okay, who is this true light and what has he done and what, how does that affect us? And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you there, there's one major question that I want to bring to your attention this morning um, and one major thought. Um, the major thought is this, that the single most important decision that you will make in your life is what you do with Jesus. 
Um, regardless whether that be that you reject him or whether you um, know him and actually being aware of who he is. Perhaps you've grown up in the church and you think, okay, well then I'm going to be aware of him but not really trust in him, not bow before him as Savior and Lord. Or whether it be that you see him and his beauty and his radiance and the fact that he has made clear to you life and you look to that life and you celebrate it and you run to him and allow him to be your complete hope. Um, the single most important decision that will be made in your life is what you do with Christ. And so um, with that being said, let's look this morning at, uh, at John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. If you would, in the honor of the reading of God's word, please stand with me. John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for uh, how it reveals Christ to us. We're grateful how, because of it, Lord, that we can stand here and rejoice in the great truths that we find in it. Lord, help us to see clearly, help us to understand who Christ is and what he has accomplished as he came. And Lord, above all, may it be that we are all found in him. Lord, that we are found to be born of God. So Father, uh, it is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So John chapter 1, we're going to just walk through this passage as we traditionally do. So John chapter 1 verse 9, the very first verse says, The true light which gives light to everyone. Now, the first thing that John is trying to do real quickly is to make a separation between the light, essentially, that is John being one who proclaims the light, but he is not the light in and of himself. Instead, he is one that has the privilege, the grand privilege, to go forth to proclaim the beauties of the gospel. The one who gets to go and he gets to baptize with water, looking forward to the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so when you look at this passage and it says the true light, it is speaking in particularly of Christ. The one who has come to exegete, to make known to us the life that can be found in him. Now, one of the things you'll notice in this passage is it, it continues and it says, which gives light to everyone. Now, there are a couple of different interpretations of this passage, but I'd like to give you the one that I think is the most accurate. Now, I will go ahead and say one of the ways this is understood is they believe that it is a basic consciousness, an intellectual um, enlightenment, so to say. That's the light that they're making reference to here. Um, I think that's a faulty understanding. And uh, the other option is one that is making reference to nationality. That it, is not, it does not matter where you were born. It does not matter how you were raised. Um, Christ came to give light, and he gives that light to each and every individual. So, Uh, Let me back that up real quickly. So Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. This is a grand passage. It says this. This is, um, so this is Isaiah. So what we were looking at in Isaiah here is called the servant song. So what we have here is the father speaking to the son. This is all the way back in Isaiah. It's an incredibly interesting and, and beautiful passage. You'll find it all the way from 49 leading into that famous passage in Isaiah 53. But it says, Uh, He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. So let me stop right there. So the very first thing that we're hitting out of the gate here is the fact that Jesus did not come only to 
rescue those of Jacob. He did not come only to rescue the Israelites. And so when you look at this, it says it's too light of a thing. It's not grand enough. It's not, it's not incredible enough. It's not the salvation that I've prescribed all the way back in Genesis. I'm not working to redeem just Jacob. I'm working to redeem for myself a people that will be from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Notice this as it continues. I will make you as a, notice the word here, light. I will make you as a light for the nations. And see, this is the, the beauty. This is not like, I mean, can, can you imagine? Sure, if we read this passage and light wasn't present, then maybe we could begin to assume something different. But, I mean, how incredible is it that the Holy Spirit inspired this particular language to make sure that even light was used in this passage in Isaiah 49 to make it abundantly clear that each and every individual, regardless of, of ethnicity, regardless of birth, has been given a light that, that by that light we may see and know the life that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And one thing I would say this gives us great comfort in doing is that we can go to each and every man, regardless of their intellectual ability, regardless of their education, regardless of their socioeconomic background, that Christ is the light for each and every individual that we come in contact with. We are able to offer that freely because Christ has come to be a light to the nations. And so it continues that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. When Christ comes, he comes as a light, the true light, which gives life to, gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so as this light enters in, we look all the way back to Jesus' birth as he comes in. We can see even there it is marked by a great light as he comes. It's marked by that great star. That that light was meant to simply give a little bit of information, a little bit of insight. Hey, the, the, the true light, the one that is far brighter than any star that can be perceived, is here, it's coming. And friends, I'm going to be honest with you, each and every soul sees this light. And I, and, I, and I say that unapologetically. And I say that also being aware that there are those who will perish without hearing the gospel. Now perhaps you're going to ask me, how can that be? How can it be that each and every individual sees this light? Friends, God has made it abundantly known that not only does he exist, but even his attributes have been clearly seen, being understood from what was made. Romans 1 attests to this. Romans 1.20 in particular. To the point where it goes to the extent to say that men are without excuse. Each and every soul has perceived this light. They have chosen to suppress it or they have chosen to accept it. And by God's grace, they may accept it. But friends, do not be fooled. You are not walking up to each individual and assuming that they stand on neutral ground before God. That is not the case. Each has perceived and understood. They see this light. He came to give light to everyone. And that they see that light, they have done something with it. I'm convinced, and I am convinced in this from the scriptures, that men naturally suppress the light because they love the darkness. Friends, men love the darkness. If you don't believe me, why is it that we love to keep our sin in secret or only with those who would give hearty approval to it? We never allow it to be brought into the light because we love our deeds and our deeds are darkness. They are against the counsel of the perfect and, and wise God. And so instead we, them, we, we cherish the darkness rather than the light. And so as we come in contact with people, know that you're not going up to someone who is morally neutral and you're not going up, not having a conversation with someone who is about to make a decision. They have made their decision. 
Sin has run rampant in their souls and in their lives. And friends, if you don't believe me, look into your own. Where were you? Where were you before Christ rescued you? You had already made your decision. You had already made your decision to love your sin. Perhaps you were six when you were saved, and even then, before. Perhaps you were at 30, 40, 70. Nonetheless, the decision had been made. We love the darkness. And yet, Christ was so kind. And I want you to realize the kindness in this. This condescension that we look at. Simply in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came so that the men's, their deeds, their darkness would be exposed. That when we look at the light, the glory of Christ, that we might see fully how wickedly we have dealt with the God who has loved us and offered us a great rescue and redemption. And so the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then we see in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. This goes back to verse 9 to clarify the fact that this is not in regard to an intellectual enlightenment, but is instead in regard to um, a national thing in the sense that each and every soul, each and every nationality has been given this light. And so he breaks this down into two groups. Verse 10, he breaks it down into those who were created through him. So in verse 10, he was made, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Know him. The word there is gnosko. It's the same word that you would find in a passage like Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we look at this word, it is an actual understanding of they did not have a full grasp, knowledge, and affection for him. They had not looked to him and said, look, you're everything that we've longed for. Instead, uh, the same word, when we consider the word know, also can be translated having an intimate affection for. And so what we find here, I'm convinced, is not simply not having a knowledge of, but instead having a lack of affection for. Now, I want to kind of bring this to your attention, perhaps, as we look at this and we say, yes, men love the darkness rather than the light, then we can assume very clearly that as the light comes into the world, you would find it to be blinding and not simply, not something that we would accept readily. The same way that as you you drive out of your carport or something like that, and you are immediately met with the sun's bright rays, the first thing that you do is shield your eyes. That when we come and have this intimate encounter with Christ, when his light is revealed to us, there is almost an immediate uh, knee-jerk reaction of almost a covering of your eyes or doing something to kind of keep yourself from that light hitting you in full. And I think we see this even in sanctification. Because in justification, when the light of Christ is revealed to us, we see him in all of his beauty and all of his splendor, then immediately perhaps there is a knee-jerk reaction back, but then as that light begins to permeate your life, you feel the warmth of it, and then by God's grace you learn to love the light. But in sanctification, we can even see that as the light begins to get into places that we hold dear, sins that we love and cherish, sins that we call maybe pet sins, Perhaps it's the little things that you think to yourself, God, you don't really belong here. They did not know him. And the issue is it is because they knew, they loved, they had an affection for someone other than him. Other than him that is completely and totally contrary to him. Do not be fooled, my friends, that by God's grace he may reveal to you the fact that the darkness has absolutely no fellowship with the light. None. And so if you be in Christ, my prayer for you this morning, my prayer for myself this morning, is that there not be a single ounce of darkness that I still hold dear, but that as God reveals the light of Christ in my life, 
as he makes known to me Christ from the scriptures, as he makes known to me Christ from uh, fellowship with other believers through the, through the application of the Holy Spirit, that he makes it clear that darkness must be put to death and that my love, that my knowledge, my intimate affection must be placed on the only true light that is in Christ and in Christ alone. The darkness must fade, the darkness must perish. And he came so that that would actually occur. And so he does make this distinction here in verse 10. He was in the world, the world was made through him, which, by the way, essentially means that it's almost impossible for us not to know him. Everywhere we look, everywhere we look, we're meant to see his beauty, we're meant to see his splendor and his majesty, and yes, there has to be then some type of suppression where we push away that light, where we instead ignore the very clear evidences of his person, of his Uh, of the knowledge of who he is. And then we see this transition into verse 11. Perhaps the most tragic. He came to his own. This is where we see that distinction. That there is a people that he is making reference to. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Can you imagine? I mean, and we're going to look next week at the the incarnation, but imagine this. The God of creation who has selected for himself a people, in particular in this case we're talking about the Israelites. He had selected for himself this people. He comes to them, and even to the point where he makes special privileges, essentially trying to make sure that they have a clear understanding that the God whom I, the God who has chosen you, has selected you out from the peoples, the one who has given you all of the benefits of having the law and having the sacrificial system, all of these things that are meant to reveal Christ to you, he's come to you, and now essentially what you're doing is rejecting him in full. And I want you to notice the distinction in the language here. So the first thing that you see is that he does, they did not know him. Those who, He was in the world, the world was made through him. Those people did not know him. But I want you to see verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. It is a different word. Receive him. Almost to the point where John is writing, they knew him. They knew exactly who he was. And I'm going to confess to you, I've had conversations with Orthodox Jews who reject the the deity of Christ. They reject that he was um, the Messiah. And after a certain point, I have to look at them and just ask, how is it that you suppress your your own scriptures so heavily? How is it that as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at very clear indications of the ways that Christ would come, that what his work would be, how is it even possible that you can reject, that you can know him, know him, and reject him in full? They did not receive him. They did not allow him to be, essentially, the Messiah. They did not allow him to be that one that they have been waiting for. Instead, they rejected him and removed him from that position in full, and they have been found without a Savior. Now, I can't help but apply this to our own case. Now, this is an application. This is not explicitly within the text, but I would argue that it can be an application made to us. Many of us have grown up in a situation where all of the benefits of those who have been chosen those who have been brought into the family of God have been given to us. We've been benefited by the fact that we have come and we grew up in a home where very clearly Christ was made clear to us. Very clearly. That we perhaps were raised in a home where we sat down and we read the Bible together. Or perhaps you were raised, in a, um, raised by parents who even got you to memorize Scripture. They knew Him. 
But friends, this is the issue. Every single one of these decisions comes down not to a nationality, not to a people group, but comes down to a single person. The question is, what will you in particularly do with Christ? It doesn't matter what your parents did. In this particular case, yes, perhaps there were, there were many Jews who repented and placed their faith in Christ, but as a nationality as a whole, it seemed like most rejected him. But the issue is, the only means by which we will enter in to the benefits of Christ, to enter into his person, is by making a personal decision in and of ourselves. And so my question to you before we go any further and look at the, the beauties of what we find in verses 12 is this. First of all, I would argue that probably each and every one of us, it's been made known to us who Christ actually is. Each and every one of us have been met with the gospel. It's been heard. Perhaps you um, do not like that light shining at you. Perhaps it's painful. Perhaps as even if you be in Christ, that light shining into the dark places that you wish to keep separate from him. Perhaps those dark places fight back. But if you be in Christ, then uh, of course we, love, we, we would then hate sin and love for that light to shine into our lives. But perhaps... He has been made known to you. He's clear to you. My question is, what are you going to do with it? Have you actually received him? And I want to make this abundantly clear. There are people who believe the things that are found in Scripture that are not actually in Christ. I know that sounds foolish to you. They believe that these types of things happen. They have been taught these things from a young, young age. They've been taught that, yes, uh, Jesus came. He, was, he, was, he came, and he came to, to bear our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That they understand they've been taught these things their whole life, but they have rejected them in full. And I want to make it clear, an understanding of these things does not equal salvation. Submitting to Christ as Lord equals salvation. If we do not submit to him as Lord, God, and King, then these benefits that we're about to look at are not applied to us. And I want to make that abundantly clear because I'm about to share some fantastic news. But I want you to understand that each and every one of these things is only applied to those who believe in Christ. And I want you to hear the language. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's do it again. But to all who did receive him. This idea of reception is seeing him as the great treasure this world has to offer. Is looking at him as exactly who he is, the light of the world. And looking at that light and saying that's far greater, it's far better. It's, it's, it's a greater affection for me, that light that's being shown to me in Christ than anything this world has to offer. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the very first thing you see here is this idea of reception and belief. This idea of reception and belief is not a basic intellectual uh, understanding or belief, but is instead an idea of saying, this is everything that our hope has been in. Every, every hope, every joy, every bit of, 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 of future hope is set on this one individual. It's set on Christ. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. And I want to point this out again. Believed in his name. Faith. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the five solas, and we looked at sola fide. By faith alone are men saved. This belief that we are looking at here is that saving faith. It is not a blind faith. It is not a faith mustered up in the human heart but is instead a faith given by God, one that actually produces something. 
And I want you to understand that it can only be known to be true and saving faith if it actually does produce something. And the very first thing that you see is it will produce a change in standing before God. Notice, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the word is exosia, means authority. He gave the right to become children of God. He gave the unique authority. I want you to hear that. He's given you saving faith. And by that faith, by believing and trusting in him, he has given you the authority to become children of God. I want you to see the major change in the standing of this individual. Those who were in rebellion against God all of a sudden are called sons of God. Now, how does this come about? We're going to get back to the sons of God in a moment, but I want to point out to you how this comes about because I'm going to need to look at that clearly. So in verse 13, it says this, who were born not of blood. So they were not born of some lineage. It is not as though that their lineage, it is not as though their Jewish heritage or even whatever heritage that you would like to claim produced some saving faith in them. And then I would argue another one that's incredibly important is the second one that says, nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of the flesh. Friends, flesh can only give birth to flesh. John 3 makes this abundantly clear. If you long for spiritual things, then guess what? The spirit must be the one who gives birth to it. The flesh can and will only give birth to flesh. And friends, Scripture has made it abundantly clear in Romans 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. The only means by which we might become sons of God is not by our own will. It is not by our lineage. It is not by any other source but God's. Notice the continuation in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Notice, but of God. Now, I want to read this to you a little bit differently. Notice verse 12 again. We're going to skip some things. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born of God. You see, the entire argument here is Paul is, I mean, John is nixing any claim that man might have of his birth. Not a single soul argues that by, that, that by some miraculous means they gave birth to themselves. They were the cause and source of their original birth. And friends, we would be foolish to assume that we would be the cause of our new spiritual birth. John chapter 3 is an incredible passage that we'll deal with in the future, but I want you to understand when we get there, and even as we look here, that the one who is to receive glory and praise for our being born in him, the one who is to receive glory and praise for our standing before him as a son of God is only God who is the one who actually gave us that birth. Now, I would like to highlight a couple of benefits. I will not cover them all, but I'd like to cover a few. What does it mean then? What does it mean that I'm a child of God? What does it mean that I'm, 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 I mean, I'm adopted in, I'm an heir of God? So let's walk through a couple real quickly. First and foremost, you are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. An heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. I'm going to be honest. I come to passages like this. This is found in Romans 8. And... Every single time I come to it, it's hard for me not to laugh at it. Because as I look at my state before this, because I can confess to you that I certainly was one 
who was in the, who, who the world was made, Christ was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. I had no affection for him. That I had rejected him time and time again as Christ would make himself, when someone would preach the gospel to me. And all of a sudden a rebel, one who, one who from his birth longed for my own glory above the one who created me, who knit me together in my mother's womb. I longed for my own glory above his. And instead of calling me an enemy and dealing with me as such, instead he dealt with Christ in the way that he should have dealt with me. That I might be dealt with as Christ should have been dealt with. See, the beauty of being called a son is I am treated as such. That as one who should be dimmed eternally, I am granted eternal kindness from God, as Ephesians 2 would say. I am a co-heir with Christ. And I want you to notice the language here again. Heir means that there is indeed a reward, something to receive. You see, an heir, we always have to deal with uh, the fact that there's an heir, then ultimately then there is an inheritance. Friends, the beauty is the inheritance is God himself. Please do not be mistaken. Do not subscribe to any of the foolish things this world would throw at you as if an inheritance is something that's given to you. Perhaps it is uh, the true glory of heaven is the mansion that you will reside in. That's foolishness. The true glory of heaven is the triune God reigns there. And we get to dwell in his presence forevermore. It's as we find in Ephesians 1 that it's clearly said that he is the Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. Friends, the down payment is always the same as whatever else is to be paid. The Holy Spirit of God indwelling you is clear evidence and certainty that one day you will dwell in the presence of the triune God in complete fullness. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would rest very comfortably in your position. But, very, but even more so than that, that you would rest very comfortably in the one who has bought you that position. You see, the issue is we can look to Christ and we can consider him the one who brings us the benefits. Or we can look at Christ and assume that he is indeed the benefit in and of himself. It's crucial that we understand crucial that we understand that at the end of all of this, that the end of this grand introduction of John, which I have told you is, is, is theologically dense as any, pa- as any passage we can find, the end result, the whole purpose of it, is that at the end of reading this, there would be no mistaking who Christ is, what he has accomplished, and ultimately what that means for you. Everything that he talks about in this, in this introduction flows throughout the rest of this book. That when all is said and done, when we look at the fact that we've been born of God, that we will know full well that if we be born of him, then we are certainly in him. And if we are in him, then we will certainly dine at his table all our days. Because that is what happens to a son. We are brought into his family and that by God's grace, we will dwell there forevermore. Now let me clarify a couple of things. You notice in verse 12 but to all who did receive him. Understand the exclusivity of this. Understand the exclusivity of this. Um, it's, It's not a nice thing to say anymore, exclusive. But there is very clear exclusivity in everything that we've made reference to this morning. All the benefits of those who are in Christ, being in Christ in and of itself, it is only for those who receive this. 
It is only for those who receive him as the light that comes into the world that by which we can see completely and fully. And so my prayer for you is this morning that you would understand two things. That it is exclusive, meaning that it is absolutely bent up in what you do with the gospel. It is completely and totally based in how have we responded to the good news of Christ to us. Secondly, my prayer is that you would understand the necessity, the urgency that we have as gospel heralds. Understand, no one comes to faith in Christ without hearing the gospel. Scripture makes it abundantly clear. Romans 10 makes it abundantly clear. Believing comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ. The gospel must be made known. And so due to the fact that it is an exclusive gospel, that it is exclusive on entry into this glorious position of being a son of God, My prayer is that we would be faithful heralds as we go to proclaim the beauty of the gospel that those who have rejected, those who have not known by God's grace, they can have have Christ revealed to them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the privilege of um, revealing Christ to us. Thank you for being the light that came into the world that we might see, that we might know that, Lord, by the power of the Spirit that we might believe, Lord, I know that it's nothing. Scripture makes it clear. Born not of the will of man, not of flesh, not of blood, but born completely of God, meaning that you are due all praise. And so, Father, I pray that we do just that, that as we leave this place, praise would be on our tongues, that we would celebrate you above all things. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for Christ and the gospel, and it is in his name and through his precious blood we pray. Amen.